0: I encourage you to do two things. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20, and we'll begin, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 18 to 38, I believe. And uh, while you're turning there, we're going to do two things before the message starts. One, uh, in order to get you ready for the message, I would like you to brainstorm in your mind a church that you know of by name who has significant influence Over greater Christian culture, either good or bad. So think of a popular church that uh, has influence over Christian culture, either negative or positive. And while you're thinking about that, um, uh, before we get in the message, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, I'm going to show you a testimony video uh, about how Christ has redeemed a marriage. And we're going to talk. And uh, the reason I'm showing you this is it's kind of our way of kind of trying to promote our Together for Good conference. So. I want you to be encouraged by it, and I actually want you to uh, consider praying about whether or not uh, this would be something that the Lord would have you do as a couple. So we could have the video play right now.
1: My thought of a perfect marriage was one of romance, great communication, having a great home. I was doing my best to be the perfect wife to him and be Actually, I was being fake. I was in college, put myself through school, and I was a waitress. And Jeff came into the place that I was working one day, and he walked in, and I looked over, and I saw this man that was just unbelievably handsome.
2: The first time I walked in, I thought, Wow, she she could be the one.
1: And I thought, Who in the heck is that?
2: She was beautiful. She was everything I had ever dreamed about in a wife, and actually asked her out for a date.
1: We were in love with each other. Uh, I couldn't sleep well. <laughs> um, I had butterflies all the time and he seemed to have the same.
2: Probably nine months after we started dating, Cheryl had to go off to Dayton, Ohio for some training. When I came back, uh,
1: Jeff uh, picked me up from the airport, whisked me off to uh, one of our favorite restaurants. The waitress came uh, back to our table and
2: he pulls up the top of the platter and there's a box.
1: It had a big bow on it. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to ask me to marry him.
2: And she said yes.
1: We were whisked off to wonderful Southern California
2: for our life together. And it was all about just, you know, how much money can we make? We bought a house with a beautiful ocean view. We had all the things of the world. We
1: could spend money, go shopping, buy the right clothes.
2: I thought our marriage was going great.
1: I thought we had the perfect life. What started to happen to me was there was what I would call a numbness that started to happen. I didn't understand it. I started um, getting angry inside. As I was feeling emptier and emptier and emptier, uh, I started putting more time into my job The men at work were paying a lot of attention to me, and I enjoyed it. One year, um, I went to our national sales meeting. I started talking to a man that I had known for a long time, and he started talking about his marriage and how uh, he wasn't happy. And I thought, oh my gosh, um, that sounds like me. This man flew into California, into Los Angeles, um, to meet with me one day. And um, I'm embarrassed to say this, but um, we met at a hotel, and that's when the relationship became physical and when I succumbed to a full-blown adulterous affair. One day, I just broke. Jeff walked into the room and he saw me crying, which was kind of rare for me. I didn't really cry a lot. And he
2: said, What's going on? And she said, Um, nothing. And I said, no, come on, tell me what's up. And she said, I'm not sure I love you, in fact. I don't know if I've ever loved you. I'm like, what are you talking about? And Jeff stepped back, and
1: he tried to put his arms around me, and I just shunned him. I, I sat back. I thought divorce was the answer. And that's what I started to pursue.
2: I was at home um, one evening reading the girls a bedtime story and the doorbell was ringing and it's the sheriff serving me with divorce papers. You know, I signed for the papers, headed back up the stairs, finished reading the bedtime story to the girls, put them down, and then just basically went crazy. Went downstairs, I'm like, what is this all about? And I was cold. I was cold to him.
1: I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to go to counseling. I didn't want to make the marriage work. And so I divorced him on August 21st, 1992.
2: For those first three years following the divorce, I was so angry at Cheryl that I couldn't even look at her. I started pretty quickly after the divorce going to a Friday morning men's Bible study. And finally, about Three years after the divorce, one night in my bed, reading the Bible, uh, and I came across a passage in Proverbs. It was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and it was just, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. And through that, God was just showing me, Jeff, you've been leaning on your own understanding for years, and for the first time, I want you to trust in me with all your heart. And that night as I sat there in bed and just prayed and cried and wept, I think for the first time I realized, you know, I need to give up, surrender my whole heart to the Lord. And that night, um, Jesus became first in my life.
1: About three months after our divorce happened, um, I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was an unbelievable day and it was probably, besides the day of my divorce, probably one of the saddest days of my life. And that's because I looked behind me and I saw what I had left behind. I had made a huge mistake and the huge mistake was that I didn't know Christ. A few months after that, um, I kept hearing this It was a stirring that was going on in my heart to call Jeff, to repent to him for all the things I had done wrong, how I had hurt him, and also just a very small inkling of I want you to try to reconcile your marriage.
2: Cheryl wrote me a letter and she called me up and said, look, I've written you a letter. I want to come over to your house. I want to sit down in your living room and read it to you.
1: I was very nervous. and. He wasn't open to me, and I just asked him if I could come over for 10 minutes.
2: And I said to her, look, if you want to come over and talk to me about the girls, that's great, but anything else, I don't want ha- i don't want to have anything else to do with it.
1: And I said, this isn't about the girls. And he said, no. And I said, just give me 10 minutes.
2: And I finally said, OK, you can come over. You can sit across the room in this one chair and read me the letter. I don't know what kind of response you're wanting from me, but I just want you to know that, you know, I still don't trust you. I was shaking
1: and I looked at this man that I had hurt so badly and thought, how could I make up for what I've done? At the very end, I said, Jeff, you know, I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior.
2: I felt like, yeah, this was just convenient or just coincidental. or that she, after I had been begging for her to fight for our marriage, or begging for her to stay in the marriage, that uh, she accepted Christ three months after that. In fact, I didn't believe it. And
1: so, when I looked up, he had tears running down his face. And I asked him if he would ever consider reconciling our relationship. And because he was crying, I thought that was his sign to me, or God's sign to me, that Jeff was on the same page that I was. And Jeff laughed in my face and he said, I will never, ever consider doing that. Don't ever ask me that again.
2: And what she didn't know at the time was, it really did hit me and I would take this letter out two or three times a week at night, especially when I didn't have the girls, read this letter and uh, it would really just, you know, I would just weep.
1: What God put on my heart very lightly at first became such a strong force. And He said to me, Cheryl, I want you to walk with me in this and I want you to pursue reconciliation of your marriage. My desire is that your family and your marriage be put back together. Sometimes I was on my knees (laughs) praying and crying out to God, "I, I can't do
2: this, I
1: don't know how to do this.
2: It took time for me. What I call it, she had to make deposits in my trust account.
1: Another couple years would go by, and I would think, it's four years, I can't do this. And it really didn't matter what I thought.
2: And Guy was really showing me uh, week after week how she had changed, and she really was seeking Him with all that she had. And through that, I, there was evidence of a changed heart, and not only in Cheryl, but in myself started inviting me over for dinner to her house with the girls, and for a long time I said no, 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 and then probably after about a year I finally said yes one day.
1: Then what started happening about six months into doing dinner together and being together as a family is he actually asked me out on a real date. (laughs) He actually said the words, "Um, I think it's time for us to get remarried, (laughs) and um, I was overwhelmed. We had been divorced for seven years, and now we're going to be a husband and wife again, and a family again, and God just put it all back together.
2: On October 3rd, we went to Beaver Creek, Colorado, and we were remarried at the chapel in Beaver Creek.
1: I just closed my eyes, and I was like, Lord, <laughs> you've done something huge.
2: I wake up every morning with Cheryl beside me in bed, and it's almost like I have to pinch myself. I can't believe that our family's back together. It's definitely a miracle.
1: We've been remarried now for nine years, and Christ is first in our lives. I'm second, and Jeff's second, and our family is second,
2: and Jesus is first. We are Jeff and Cheryl Scruggs.
1: And we are
0: Second. Isn't that a cool story of redemption, guys? Amen. Did you catch um, what the problem was in the marriage? Anyone want to take a guess? Was it the affair? No, by her own words, she said that the problem was not my affair. It was Jesus Christ, that I didn't know Jesus. And that's actually what I want to focus on. This story isn't really about somebody who had an affair and whose marriage fell apart and whose marriage came back together. It's a story about people meeting Jesus Christ. And I actually think that the marriage, the whole sole purpose of marriage for you and I, in any kind of marriage, whether a good marriage, a healthy marriage, a rocky marriage, is to point people to Jesus Christ. It's to point people to him. It is a sign of the great relationship Between Jesus and the church. Did you know that the Bible starts with the marriage in Genesis chapter 1, verses all the way to verse 3? You are saved by a marriage in Ephesians 5. And in the end of the revelation, you are actually invited to a marriage supper. Marriage is a sign of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, because of that, I think it's really important that we all take time to make sure that our marriages, whether we're healthy marriages or struggling marriages, are focused on Jesus Christ, and that takes work. And so because of that, because of the calling that God has placed on our marriages to point people to Jesus, I think we could all use a little work, including my marriage, right, Liz? Yeah. So with that, I want to invite let you know that the church has decided that we are holding a marriage conference in November, uh, put on by Family Life Canada, it's called Together for Good, and we would like you to consider praying about whether or not you should attend or invite people. And if someone invites you, please don't take it as sort of this subtle way that maybe your marriage is falling apart and you need it. Just take it as a way we all need to work on a marriage, and I'd love you to, love you to attend because no matter where we are, God has placed a call on each and every marriage at manner that Jesus is first and we are second, Right? Oh, come on, that is a week. Amen. <laughs> Jesus is first and I are second. So the reason that we're doing the marriage conference is to help each other do that. So I want to let you know that. I want you to consider praying about that as we go forward. Uh, you can find out more information online. If you, go on, if you want to sign up, there's a little link at the very top of the church website. Just click on it and let us know that you want to come. I think it will be very, very good. And uh, Switching gears, I, I, let's uh, get into our passage this morning. And look at Acts chapter 20, verses 18 to 38. And I would encourage you to open your Bibles if you have your Bibles. Uh, I always encourage you, just so you know, if you own a Bible, i love you to bring it along so you can follow along. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, you can follow along on screen. And if you don't have your own copy, uh, the blue Bibles in the chair in front of you are for you to take home as uh, your very own copy and your very own personal Bible. It's our gift to you That Matter. I think we believe very highly and put a very high priority on the Word of God. And I want to make sure that everyone who wants a copy of the Bible gets a copy of the Bible. So this year, we've been going through, uh, the, or sorry, this fall, we're going to go through the book of Ephesians. And we're about a month into it. And we we haven't started uh, in the book yet. And that's because I want to take time uh, to explain what the city was like and what the church was like, so that when we read the book of Ephesians, you kind of have a better understanding of what is going on. And so just to recap, I, I know that most of you are here for that. Uh, I've been following along, but if you're brand new and want to, uh, I want to make sure that you're not lost, is we've been looking at the story of the Ephesian church. And we started out by saying that, my remote's not re- working, guys, up, is that, a man named Paul was called to share the Gospel of uh, Jesus outside Israel, to all the to all the Gentiles in the Roman world and beyond of the known world. And he uh, goes to a city called Ephesus, a really famous city, a really a really uh, desired city, and he plants a church in the city of Ephesus. And just like our own time, it's a very pluralistic culture. There are very lots of different kinds of spirituality. There's one main dominant one. And he spends uh, a better part of three years uh, sharing the gospel in the city of Ephesus. That's the longest he's ever been on a missionary journey up to this point. And uh, what winds up happening is that Jesus is becoming popular in the city, so much so that the city starts rioting. We talked about that last week. And uh, how about and how what winds up happening is like in a pluralistic culture. Most people don't care what you believe until you push up against their idols. Right? And when you push up against their idols, then people start fighting. And that's exactly what happened in Ephesus. A major riot broke out and almost killed Paul and all the apostles. And then after that, just so you're, we're catching up because we're skipping over a little bit of the story, is after the riot, he winds up leaving the city of Ephesus. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 20, verse 1. But later he returns he returns and comes back the way uh, he's, re- he's making he 's traveling back a certain direction, and the direction he 's taking him takes him past Ephesus, but instead of staying in Ephesus, he actually travels past it he doesn 't want to see it, but uh, he doesn 't want to spend time in Ephesus, but he wants to spend time with the believers, so what he winds up doing is he winds up. Calling the church elders of the Ephesian church to meet with him, okay? and uh, if you're wondering who elders are, elders are the leaders of the church. In a matter, we call them the board members, uh, uh, <clears throat> but here they're used as elders. And so, what winds up happening is he says, "Guys, I'm not going to be at Ephesus. I'm going to be over at this city. Why don't you, I'm going to be here for a few days?" why don't you come and see me? And what we are about to read is his farewell address. It's kind of like the last things that you read, uh, the last, uh, the, the most important things you're going to say before you go. So imagine it this way. What we are about to read is kind of like, um, uh, how, the best way to put it, is, is is a note. So have you ever had to homesit with someone or ask someone to house it for you, right? And so you, you ask them, hey, I'm going away on a, on a trip for a while, and uh, can you house it for me? And you say, sure. And usually what winds up happening, we said, is we get like this big, long email or note telling us when to water the plants, how to feed the cats, not to destroy the house, all the kind of thing. It's a list of instructions about how to take care of the home, and that's sort of what is going on here, is Paul is giving this farewell address, and in it he is telling them uh, just a few things about how to be the church. And so, with that, I love you. I love you, that's where a story picks up. But I love you to read along with me in verse 18. It says this: And when they came to him, and they being the elders of the church, Paul said to them, "You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility." and tears and trials that happened to, to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in both public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of the repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, friends, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. So he's telling them, hey guys, this is the way I lived, and now I'm feeling that like God is calling me to Jerusalem. And he's saying this in verse 23. I, will, I don't know what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that uh, imprisonment and afflictions await for me. So God is saying to him, every city that you're going in, you're going to suffer. And he says this in verse 24, But I do not account my life for any value as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord, Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of Jesus. And now, behold, I know that none among you of whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. So he's telling him this is the last time you're going to see me. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of all the blood of all. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take care of the church which he obtained from his own blood. I know that after me and my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not, not sparing the flock. And from among you yourselves men will arise speaking twisted things to draw you away from the, uh, away and be the disciples after them. Therefore, my friends, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you with tears. And now I command you to go to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance of, of all those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. Let's pray. Father, as we open up this passage to you, Uh, to us this morning. We pray that you would give us insight by your Holy Spirit on what it is to mean and how to apply it to our lives. Help us uh, today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, before I started, I ask you to give me the name of a church right now that is both popular uh, in Christian circles today. Does anyone want to give me a name? Good or bad? Yes. That's a good one. (laughs) I'm thinking of a specific church though. Anyone want to take a guess? Village church. Village Church. Okay. That's a good one. What I am gonna say to you today is that Ephesus, like village church, is one of the most influential churches of that era, both in a good way and a bad way. Ephesus was a healthy church for a very long time, and then if you read in Revelation chapter two, you get to see that the church actually went on a little bit of a spiral. But it was a powerhouse of a church, okay. All the Christian thought, all the Christian influence came out of the church, okay. I mean, all the books were coming out of there, all the music was coming out of there, all the leaders and all that kind of thing. All the uh, think about this for a minute seven out of uh, seven books in the New Testament are written to Ephesus or from Ephesus. That includes Ephesians. 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and and Revelation were all written to or about the Ephesian church. It was a powerhouse of Christian speakers. The the preaching team in Ephesus was legendary. It consisted of Paul, Apollos, Timothy, and John, all pastored the church in different seasons. I mean, do you know what that's like? That would be like if Billy Graham, John Piper, and Spurgeon were all pastoring Manner. Okay? that would be incredible. Okay? And and that is kind of what the church, Ephesian church is like. It, would, it was the place. It was the hub of cultural thought, Christian thought, at the time. And the bottom line is that the, the is that Ephesians had it had held a, the Ephesian church held a position of influence over the city and over the province of Asia in terms of its Christian thought. And so what I want you to understand is what, or what I want to deal with today, is what made the Ephesian church so influential? What made it a hub of all the teaching? Whether good or bad, whether positive or negative, why was the Ephesian church such a a powerhouse in terms of teaching and influence around the city? Well, here's what I'm going to say to you. I think it really falls on leadership. If you want to hit the next slide to you today. What the main purpose of this passage is, is to remind ourselves today that, uh, I don't know if I got it there. Hit it again. Yeah, okay. All right. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Is that the main idea of this passage that you're reading is this, is Paul's farewell address is a list of earmarks of what healthy church leadership looks like. Okay? How do I know that? Because this is what he says right at the end of in verse 28. Okay? It says, Be on your guard for you yourselves and for the what? Flock. Among whom the Spirit, Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Okay, So what I want you to catch here is, is that Paul calls the church a flock. And he, and he calls the elders, or the leaders of the church, shepherds. And shepherds are to take care of the sheep. That's what shepherds do. They're to, supposed to protect, they're supposed to nurture, and they're supposed to care. Now here's the thing I'm going to say about shepherds. Scripture, uh, about leaders in the church, okay? Scripture clearly and unapologetically declares that in any form of church leadership, Jesus is the boss. Can I have an amen in that? Oh, come on, guys. At least give me an amen for that one. Jesus is the boss of manor. Amen? Amen. Amen. And for this reason, I believe central to any model of church organization is the unquestionable reality that Jesus is the direct leader. But under that group, uh, under Jesus, is a group of people that every church has called the elders, whose primary job is to listen to God and take the church in the direction that our boss Jesus Christ asks us to go to. The church belongs to Jesus. He gets final to say over every decision that we make from what we teach all the way down to the color of the carpet and I truly believe that. An elder's primary responsibility is to try their best to listen to God, to discern God's voice and taking the church in the direction that they go in. When it calls the church the sheep, you need to hear this very clearly. That's not a compliment. Okay? When Paul tells them to look after the flock, the first thing that you and I imagine is, man, I'm a cute sheep. And that is not what it's trying to tell you. Okay? Have, in the reality, I, I think that the church is more like the gentleman's sport known as mutton-busting. Have you ever heard of mutton-busting before? I have not. <laughs> okay? And I feel like I'm a little bit of, I kind of lost my childhood a little bit because that looks cool. Okay? That looks awesome. I would love that. I would love to have a ride of sheep. If you don't know what mutton-busting is, it's simply what you saw in the video. <laughs> Musting, mutton busting event is an event held at rodeos similar to bull riding, in which children ride on sheep in the in the back of the uh, on the ride sheep instead of bulls. They are entered into a small chute either by an adult where a child is placed on top of it in a riding position, and once the child is seated at the top, the sheep is released and it usually starts to run. In an attempt to get the child off. Often, small prizes and ribbons are handing out at, uh, at the end of it, and I feel like I said that looks so much like so much fun. But the truth of the matter is, is I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you that church is more like mountain busting than shepherding. Okay, and this isn't my this isn't my implied or passive aggressive way of saying that's my experience here. But I've been in ministry for about almost the better part of 10 years now. And I get to sit down with pastors, and I get to hear what they think, and really, like, it really feels like mutton busting, where they're the kid holding on to the sheep while the sheep is trying to go in every direction but the direction that it should go, okay? (laughs) Church is a lot like that, right? And if you talk to volunteers or Sunday school teachers or pastors or church borrowers, pastors feel like they're leading a mutton-busting church. Sheep, here's what I know about sheep. I don't know a lot about sheep, but I know that they smell. I know that in the right conditions they bite. And that's just, uh, and if you've been in church before, you know that Christians bite. If you've been in church long enough, you know that they will devour you. They will spit you out and without even thinking about a second thought. I don't know a lot about sheep, but I also know that they don't they wander off in any direction that they sh, that they think they should and sometimes they even kick against where they know where they should go. And one of the purposes of eldership and leadership in the church is to understand where God wants the church to go and then his and then his people or the leaders are responsible for helping the church Move in that direction, because we're sheep, right? And we like our comfort. Like, and sometimes what we need to understand is that God directs the church into places where they don't, where the sheep don't necessarily need to go. And we need elders and leaders who don't shrink back from that calling. Do you know what it's like to lead a mutton busting church? Do you know? Do you know what the famous two sayings of a mutton-busting church is? Uh, Leading a church that goes in any direction that it doesn't accept the one that God calls it to? They will say one of two things. They will say thing, my family built this church, and how dare you tell us where to go? Or they will say something like this, we've never done that before. And if you want to know, and I've, I've sat with pastors, and I've cried with pastors, where that's been their experience. That hasn't been my experience here. I've been very blessed but i've sat there and i've and i've and i've been with pastors who feel god's call on them to you know disciple the church or to maybe move the church in evangelism somewhere i've seen church eldership boards try to do that i've seen sunday school teachers try to do that and they just say how dare you my family built this church we will laugh. we were here before you we're here now and we're going to leave out we'll be here when you're gone I've seen that. If you, if you ever hear of a church eldership board doing that, I promise you that the church pastor is Googling other churches to look at. I promise you that. And if you ever heard church say we've never done that before and we shouldn't do that before, I can tell you that that is very disheartening for a pastor too. Again, I want to make it clear that that's not my experience here. I just... I'm just trying to paint you a picture of, you know, what a world is like for pastors. And if Jesus is the boss of the church, then you need leaders that know how to move the flock where God wants it to be. What you and, you and I need is shepherds that won't shrink back. And so Paul here is, what you're listening to here is, in the text is, it's a list of earmarked qualities of healthy leaders, of how we judge healthy leaders. Paul's farewell address is a list of earmarks of what healthy church leadership looks like. What are the earmarks of healthy church leadership? I think that that is something that you and I need to know. Now, before I go on, let me just address something very clearly to you. Is that you might be sitting here and you might be like looking at yourself and you say, Dan, I'm not going to be an elder. I don't care about leading the church. Why should this message apply to me? And I think it's very important that it applies to all of us, at least on three accounts, because I think of this. Because I think, for, I think this passage applies to us in manner in three different ways. Number one, we need to keep re-evaluating our, good, our, our ideas of good leadership. Every single one of us, including I, myself, has unwritten expectations about what we expect pastors to be, Sunday school teachers to be, elders to be, worship leaders to be, okay? Sometimes we think they're good-looking or they're charismatic, which is me, (laughs) okay? Sometimes uh, we think they they should be everything. They should be the business uh, people, they're the CEOs that... They're the best counselors. That the best worship leaders that they can sing on tune. You know, I gotta tell you something. When I came here, I told people, "Don't make me sing, right?" And uh, a few months ago, I get the privilege and opportunity to uh, run a service at the lodge, and Ken wasn't with me that time, and I said, "Guys, I'm sorry, I can't sing," and they made me sing the hymnal book. They never did again. <laughs> okay. But my point is is that we have all these kind of unwritten rules, stipulations about what we think leaders should be, about what the eldership should be. And it's important for you and I to remember and reevaluate what you and I think godly leadership looks like by going back to the word and saying, look, these are the qualities that make a good leader. So what I think is very important for you and I to do is like, when you're judging the leadership of any church, our church, the church down the street, what Paul is about to outline is the criteria by which I think you should judge leadership. Okay? Because these are the things he's telling them to do. Number two, I think it's important because we need to guard against uh taking board selection for granted right and i'm not saying that this has happened here but i've been in churches where the board selection season comes around and it's just whoever whoever wants it okay (laughs) and i think that what i think has been really important and really a blessing here is that we don't do that here right that we take board selection seriously and i think that is really really important we are about to enter into a season in the Two, three months from now, we're, we're going to rotate our leaders on and off. And it's really important for us to be thinking about what qualifies as good leadership and eldership in the church. And thirdly, and I, I know that the board will feel squeamish about this, but I'm going to make them squeam anyway, is I think we should celebrate the people who have answered the call to, uh, to eldership and manner. Amen? Amen. Now, I know that they don't do it for the glory or the honor, but I think Uh, I am about, I'm going to outline what a good leader is and a good eldership today, and I'm going to tell you that in the three years that I've been here, whether past or current leadership, I have been blessed, and I've seen these qualities in every single leader of this church. And I think we should say thank you, don't you? Okay. So with that, I'm going to tell you what a... Paul counts as a good elder of the church, and that's this, is that a good leader, if you want to write this down, this is just the uh, the preliminary one, I'll, I'll get into it a little bit, but a good leader catches, a good leader guards, a good leader is grounded, a good leader is graceful, and a good leader becomes a friend. So with that, let me explain as we go on For, for first. So what I'm going to say is this, is a good leader understands that More is caught than taught. Listen to verses 18 to 27 with me. You yourselves know how I lived among you um, uh, from the first day that I sat in Asia. I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that came through the plots of the Jews. And that I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or teaching to you in the public or from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now that I'm on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except in town after town, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that there will be chains and afflictions away to me. But I count on my life no value to myself, so that I may finish the course that the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. To testify to God's gospel of grace, and now that I, now that, and now I know that none of you among uh, whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And then he goes on for there. And here's what I want you to catch: is that Paul is not ground standing. Okay, he's not going out, and he's not saying, look how awesome I am, look how great I am, aren't I the business, I'm the best Christian in the world, that's not what's happening here. The first half of the speech is him telling you, look guys, this is how I lived among you, this is how I acted, this is how I was, and this is what I want you to catch, is, is that if you want to be a good leader, emulate what I did, okay? Understand that I lived and I preached the gospel to you. Understand that I I lived where no one could question me. Understand that I went from house to house. Live by my example. And so what I think is very important for you and I understand is that eldership, whether it's a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a worship leader, or the board itself, lives in such a way where 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 what they pass on more is caught than taught. They are to live by example, Listen carefully to what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives a list of character qualities that a board member should have. It says this, an overseer therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach, Not not addicted to much mind, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy, one who manages his own house with competency, having his, his children under control with dignity. Because if anyone does not know how to manage their own household, how will he take care of God's kingdom? Okay. And what I want you to see with that is that I find what I find interesting is that there's nothing on that list. Of quality, character qualities and leader in an elder that isn't expected for normal Christians. Okay, do you understand what he said right there? There isn't a list for leaders and then a list for normal Christians. Everything that an elder is expected to do are things that you and I, normal Christians, people who are not in leadership, should be doing. You're going to tell me that normal Christians don't are faithful to their wife? Of course they are. Normal Christians should be hospitable. Normal Christians should not be greedy. Normal Christians should do this. And so what I want you to understand is that this isn't a list of super Christians. The reason, in my opinion, why the character qualities of eldership are this way is that the elders are to be the example to the rest of us of what it means to live for Jesus Christ. Okay? When we pick leaders in our church, Sunday school teachers or anyone else for that matter, we should be picking people we don't mind using as the example, as being faithful or being honest or sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what I think is so cool? as I think on the board right now, there are things about every single board member, Elaine or Matt Rick or Dallas, that I want to emulate in my life. And I want to say thank you. But if you really want to thank a board member for their service, you know what you want to do? Live like Jesus. Because listen, all the board members, they're responsible for different areas they're responsible for leading worship, or uh, leading Sunday school, or doing all those things. And if you say, "Hey, thank you for getting the worship together," if you tell Ivan, "Hey, thanks that the building didn't fall apart on us," right? If you think, if you tell Matt, "Hey, thanks for keeping Dan in line because he's crazy," like if you say thank you, they will take that. But you want to know what really speaks to their heart is if you and I live for Jesus. Every volunteer, the volunteers in the church, right up to the eldership, does so because they want you to know Jesus Christ. And so every time someone volunteers, the question is, 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 am I wasting my time? Is it worth it? And I can tell you right now that if you live like Jesus, then that is the blessed thing that you can make an elder, encourage an elder with, is to live for the glory of God. You're going to make Matt cry. Oh, come on, guys. (laughs) Okay, So understand that good eldership means that more is caught than being taught, that they are to live by an example. Secondly, an elder must guard. Verses 28 to 31 says this, "...pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood." I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And men among you yourselves will rise up with deviant doctrines to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be alert, remembering night and day for three years that I did not stop warning about you with tears. And I want you to understand this. is like an elder must... Be on guard, not only against false teachers, but against their own hearts. Paul tells the church to pay close attention to their own lives. Leadership in church doesn't make you immune to sin. In fact, what I would argue that when you're in leadership of any kind, the temptation to sin increases. And so, what is so important is that leaders must a good elder must be on guard against his own heart and in the hearts of the other people. Remember that we are talking about an area or a city that is saturated with spiritual mysticism. And what is true there is true here and now. There are people in the church community, in Three Hills, in Calgary, whose lone agenda is to make you a follower of them. And church leadership is to act as a geek as to what is being taught And what is not being taught. And that actually applies to me as well. I submit myself to the church leadership, right? So if they're the ones that are responsible for making sure I don't go crazy, okay? They are the gatekeepers, they are to guard the flock of what is being taught and what is not to be taught. Thirdly, an elder must be grounded. Verses thirty-two to, verses, sorry, twenty-seven and thirty-two. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan of God. And verse thirty-two says this: And now I commit to you to God and to the message of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Okay. Church eldership should be grounded in the Word of God. An elder must be a person who primarily teaches the Bible through and through. Listen very carefully to what I'm going to say about this, is I don't really have a problem if we run stuff like the Truth Project or David Ramsey stuff or even Alpha. But here's what I'm going to say is that the bottom line, every elder, every Sunday school teacher, every pastor, every worship leader, they're primarily responsible to disseminate to the flock the whole counsel of the Word of God, which means this. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, the eldership of the church is to make sure that you know the Bible inside and out. Okay? Which means that when I preach up here, primarily I am going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because I want you to know the Word of God. And it also means this, is that sometimes we are going to talk about things that are uncomfortable, not because it's trendy, not because it's a social issue, not because of the shock value, but because it's in the word of God. Okay? So there'll be times when we when we look at a certain passage and we will be like trying to figure out what does God have for us in this? What does it mean? And it's going to make us feel uncomfortable. And the the point and you know what, I think that is so important because here's the problem with Pastor Dan, okay? If I don't go through the Bible, then Pastor Dan picks the topics. And you know what the problem is with that? I will probably have a hobby horse. But if I go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I will ensure that you get the whole counsel of the Word of God. My job as a pastor, at least part of it, is to make sure you know it fully. Two more, an elder must have grace or to be gracious. Listen to verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen. And what I want you to understand very clearly is this is that in ministry there is a constant temptation to use this to use ministry as a source of income for people in leadership to be entitled to the benefits rather than to serve. And you want people who have that's why when it says in uh 1 Timothy chapter 3 that an elder must not be have the love of money in their heart. They must not be greedy because when they make decisions about what to do is in a church or where to go, the primarily, primary focus cannot be a profit or the loss of profit. It has to be what, the, the faithfulness to Scripture. Okay. Which means when a church is debating an issue about what to go or where to go, we always have to factor in a financial cost, but it can't be the primary reason. I've known churches that have made doctrinal statements based on their fear of losing their charitable tax credit. You cannot have a church leadership like that. And I can't be that. I can't look to pastor the church as a way of providing money for myself. Listen very clearly to this. This is something that I really struggled with when I first became a pastor. I remember years ago, when I was youth ministering, a parent came up to me and said, Dan, I don't want you to teach this. I know it's in the Word of God, but I don't think you should. And because I was afraid of losing my job, I didn't teach it. Elders cannot be people who have the love of money in their heart. They are to serve and to tell people how great they are to use their hands and their their money and their talents to serve people, not to be entitled to a paycheck or any kind of financial blessing. Lastly, and I'm going to leave it at this, is that good elders are friends who minister better together. Listen to what it says in the closing verses. And when he said all these things, him being Paul, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on their part. They all embraced and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of what? Why? They weren't going to see him again. Which I find is a little bit selfish because if, if someone is coming up to you and saying, listen, I'm going away and I'm going to suffer for a while and I'm going to be hard, and in your primary issue is that you're not going to see me again. I'm a little like, okay, what's going on here? But here's what I want you to understand and catch: is that Paul, the people that Paul is ministering with, the elders that he's grown up with, are have become they they they've transitioned from becoming people that he ministered with to actual friends. It says that they weeped. It says that they missed him. They said, we are sorry that you are not going to be here. And I think you guys need to understand how, how crucial this is and how important this is. When Paul comes to the city initially, these people aren't his friends. They are, quote-unquote, a project, for lack of a better term. Okay? They, are people that are, they are people that don't know Jesus They are sinful, and he tells them, and he ministers to them, and he pours himself in, and through the course of time, somewhere along the line, somewhere along the way, what winds up happening is they become people that he, he, not only people that he ministers, but they become his close personal friends. And I think this, as I think good church leadership, good youth ministry, good worship teams, or good whatever, comes down to the principle that this, is that friends minister better together. Friends serve in ministry better together. Then we see in the text that the reason their hearts are broken is because they will never see him again. And so one thing that I really struggle with, and, I, and I'm going to open up and I'm just going to be real here for a second, is I really struggle with where does, where does ministry end in friendship begin. Right, because when I started here, I, w- I would take you out for a meal, right, and I would pray for you, and I would ask you how you're doing, and I would be ministering. But somewhere along the line, you became my friends, right, and that's always a conundrum for me because when I go and I receive the church for a- for a pastoral meal, I feel bad that I'm that I'm asking the church to recede a meal for a friend, right. So that's something that I struggle with, right? For me personally, both my vocation and my social life mess together. And it's really hard for me to open up and have you become more than just people I minister to. And I want to say this. This. This church family has become more than just a job. It's become more than just I'm ministering to you. You've become my friends, my family. And my prayer is this I don't, my prayer is this is, is that however long I'm here, 40 years, 40 minutes, That I could have that Paul kind of experience with you. That I would weep with you because you have, we've grown together. You take care of my family, you take care of my kid, and I am so very thankful for it. You guys are more than a project to me. Do you hear that? You are my friends. And I I want you to know how hard it is for me to get there with you because there have been times when I've opened up in in the past where I've opened up to people in ministry and I've been hurt. And so the tension is, is to keep everything quiet and to myself. But I am so thankful that you're my church family. And the people on the board are like that. They are friends that serve together. They often make fun of me during board meetings. (laughs) Like, Friends serve better together. So in conclusion, what makes a healthy leader? It's someone who lives by example. It's someone who guards the church. It's someone who is grounded in scripture. It's someone who is gracious and serves. And it's someone, I think, that eventually you serve and become brothers and sisters with. And I want to leave this. I am so blessed to see these qualities in every board member, both past and present, and I don't think we should take that for granted. Okay. Because the truth of the matter is is that there are bad leadership boards out there. And I think the health of the church right now is in a place because we, in part, because we have good leadership. Not because we are perfect, but because we have elders and leaders who want to discern God's will for manner. So please, please, please remember to thank an elder for their service. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's close with one more psalm.